don't you just hate it when that thing happens when you're composing music for a film score? Ugh, me too. And isn't it just awful when everything seems to go wrong in a very specific, yet surprisingly comedic way? That's just the worst. Okay, so I actually don't know anything about music or film scoring. It's my blind spot. But the whole point of this podcast was to talk to people to learn more about the film industry, so it's a good thing I actually work with a great film composer. My name is Laura Brincat, and on this episode, the very last episode of Poor Auteurs, I talk to a film composer who very kindly fills me in on the details of creating a score for a movie. My name is Nicholas Jacobson Larson, and I am a composer. Everybody always hates my answer to that question because, honestly, there isn't a particular genre of film that I really am drawn to. It's like, if it's good. I know that's cheesy, but I mean, really, like, if the project is good, if it's well-written, if it's well-executed, well-acted, and all that sort of thing, those are the primary things I'm looking for in a project. You know, it's not like, oh, yeah, I finally get to write music for a sci-fi show, or I finally get to write a fantasy. Like, if it sucks, I'm not going to want to do it. But, you know, it could be a kid's show. And if it's really, really well done, then I'll be attracted to that, if that makes sense. Cool. What kind of music do you like? Um, everything. You know, I grew up playing in orchestras, but I also grew up playing in rock bands and everything in between. So, like, played, um, like, made a living through college, like, playing guitar and singing in, like, bar bands. Um, so, like, all, you know, classic rock and all sorts of stuff like that. But these days, since I've been mostly focused on writing orchestral music, just studying all of the great sort of masterpieces. Uh, my favorite composer is Maurice Ravel, a great French impressionist composer, um, though he hated being called an impressionist. Um, and these days, yeah, I, I guess I'm trying, to, I'm trying to listen to more contemporary concert music, um, just kind of, for lack of a better phrase, have my finger on the pulse of what's happening um, in the contemporary classical scene. It's great. Um, composer named Jennifer Higdon, um, who I like a lot, but probably nobody anybody's really heard of, I would imagine. It's like the hipster version of classical music. Great. So how did you get started in all this? When did your love and desire to make music begin? Um, so I come from a very musical family. Uh, my mom is a piano teacher, and my dad is a guitarist and singer. My aunt and uncle are concert pianists. My sister is a violinist. You kind of go on and on. It, it sort of seems inevitable that you'd become a musician. You know, I, I, I have some cousins that aren't musicians, but a lot of people in my family went into music. Um, I think I started playing piano when I was three or four. And again, my mom was uh, my piano teacher, so um, I didn't really have a choice. Neither did my sister and I, neither of us really had a choice starting out. Um, but yeah, I went through sort of classic, you know, have to go to piano lessons. I did cello and saxophone and other things and enjoyed, really like enjoyed playing, but like most kids hated practicing, you know, wanted to go outside and wanted to play and all that sort of thing. Um, and then it really, and then I started playing guitar in, I think maybe it was like 12 or 13 or something like that. And that, that's still my principal instrument is guitar. But I think it probably wasn't until I started playing guitar that I, realized, you know, maybe this is going to be a career. And then even after that, um, I didn't really compose. I, I was in bands and wrote songs and stuff, but I didn't, didn't really compose anything 
quote-unquote serious until I was about, I think it was 20. I wrote a musical. Um, I've written a lot of musical theater. I wrote an adaptation of the French play Cyrano de Bergerac, and we put it on in my hometown of Anoka, Minnesota, with a, a bunch of old friends and colleagues. And the, uh, yeah, the experience of writing the music for that musical kind of uh, opened my eyes that this was a career possibility. That I probably had a lot of study and a lot of work to do, but that I could maybe maybe do this for a living. Um, and then it took years to get to that point. Went back to school and all that sort of thing. Cool. So where did you end up going to school? I bounced around. I'm from Minnesota. Straight out of high school, I went to the University of Minnesota, and I was a philosophy major for a year. Then I went to Berklee College of Music in Boston and studied guitar performance. Then I went back to the University of Minnesota and studied theater. And then I went back to Berkeley and studied composition. So yes, had diverse interests, and I still do. Um, but music sort of eventually won out over the others. All right, you graduate college in Berkeley. What's your next step? I, I had written that musical in 2006. And when I went back to Berkeley, I was studying composition, but it, w it was always with an eye on writing for musical theater, actually, because I had grown up doing a lot of musical theater and conducting pit orchestras and all that kind of thing. Um, so that was the hope, and I, I was working on a few different original shows with uh, a, a good friend of mine out there. And when I was looking back on the Cyrano project, it was called To the Moon, and um, trying to sort of learn some lessons from what worked, what didn't work, etc. Um, I realized that I really needed to learn more about just sort of the fundamentals of storytelling, um, whether applicable to musical theater writing or uh, novels or screenplays or whatever. So I, I took a year off. Well, actually, I, I finished school and then I basically took a year where I read just about every sort of storytelling text, you know, so the things you read in film school, you know, Robert McKee, Christopher Vogler, Blake Snyder, uh, back to Aristotle, and all, all those things, um, just to kind of have an idea of how to approach drama and music's relationship to drama and not just being insulated as the music guy, if that makes sense. And so the, the circuitous answer to your question is it was through that process of reading all those books that I ended up watching a whole bunch of films that those books were referencing as examples of do this, don't do that when you're writing a screenplay or whatever. And as, a, as I was watching a lot of those movies, I sort of fell in love with some of the film scores. And I, I had always thought film scores were interesting, but had never really considered it as uh, something I would want to do. And yeah, so I sort of had this idea, and I ran it by my, my parents and, again, my mentor, uh, Mike Halstenson, who actually had always told me, you should try this, um, and an opera professor at New England Conservatory. And the response was pretty much like, yeah, duh, you should, you should go do this. It sounds like it's interesting and you could probably um, make it work. And yeah, so it was after that year off in Boston, reading, bizarrely reading um, all these storytelling books was kind of what led me to come out here to pursue film scoring. Did you know anyone here when you moved out here at first? <sighs> Not really. Um, you know, I had a few sort of very shaky connections to people, but what I ended up doing is I sent an email to pretty much anybody I'd ever met uh, 
or you know that I was close enough to email out of the blue and basically said you know here's what I'm doing I'm moving out here I want to try to do this um, anybody that you know whether they work in music or film or whether or, or they don't um, you know I'd love to have lunch or whatever so yeah and then I just had a, a lot of people emailing me back oh you should get together with so-and-so and so for the first like mm, couple of months that I lived in Los Angeles I, I my job was pretty much having lunch with people. That's kind of like what I tried to focus on. And then out of, you know, out of several dozen lunches and drinks and coffee and all that, um, I, you know, I did meet a few people that have ended up being collaborators and then a few people that have ended up being really close friends. So you have all these meetings. Did these meetings lead to a job or anything? Or N Not immediately. I mean, I didn't, I don't think I made money writing music for maybe a year. Um, but eventually, yeah, so eventually some of those early meetings um, did lead to work because, you know, you'd meet somebody and I, I think so many of the people that I met originally, LA being a city of transplants, they saw, you know, here's a kid coming out here just with, with no real connections or prospects or anything like that and people want to help. That's, I think that's what I've definitely discovered is by and large the people that I've encountered out here, that they, they see where you are and they want to help you um, and so you know people would months later say oh yeah actually my friend is looking for a composer for something you know the pay is absolute shit but uh, it's a credit or whatever so I started getting some gigs like that um, through some of those early connections and, and again some of those have led to like really really great friendships and people that I've worked with a dozen times since then um, but yeah if I hadn't done that first hey, everybody, tell the whole world what I was doing, none of those connections really would have come to pass. Yeah. What was your first music gig here in L.A.? Well, I think my first writing gig, I did a few things for free that I don't know if I would call gigs, because I honestly, I never saw, like, I, I don't even know what they ended up um, doing with them, if they ever came out, but I did some trailers that weren't particularly memorable. Um, and then I started working for, on a project, kind of project by project basis for um, wonderful film composer Michael Giacchino um, and some other members of his uh, music team, uh, Andrea Dotsman and Chris Tilton, um, on a couple movies and some TV shows uh, doing score preparation, which is essentially a sort of process of cleaning up MIDI information before it, it uh, is actually notated on the score that the conductor conducts from, that the players uh, play their parts from. But that was probably, almost, I think, almost a year after I had moved out here. Real quick, what mm -hmm. is MIDI? I have no idea what that is. Sure. Sorry. Yeah, I no, should explain it. So um, MIDI is, you know, you know when you're watching like a low-budget movie and you can hear that it's an orchestra, but you can hear it's a fake orchestra? Um, that's, that, those, that's a MIDI mock-up that's in there. And actually, it's not even a mock-up. It's the final version in those particular cases. But a uh, simple way of putting it is just synthesized instruments that come out of your computer. Maybe they're replicating acoustic instruments like orchestral instruments, um, or maybe they're actual uh, digital uh, synthesizer sounds. Um, but yeah, all, all the what, what we call mock-ups that we use to get approved before we do live orchestra recording, that's all MIDI. Great. So what would you say was like your first 
big break? What when did things start changing, or was it just kind of a slow buildup? Yeah, I mean, it, for me, it, you know, and for me, and I think for probably ninety nine percent of composers out here, it's the big break is a myth. You know, very very rarely is somebody going to give you um, a composing opportunity when they don't believe that you have the credits. Uh, commensurate with that level of project, you know, they're always looking. Pe you know, people are hiring you. They're always looking at like, well, what have you done before? You know, if you've only done web series, you're probably not going to get a two hundred million dollar sci-fi movie with you know eight orchestra dates or something like that. Um, but actually, I should I should say that while it wasn't a big break, there's this great workshop in town called the ASCAP Television and Film Scoring Workshop, and so what that is is uh, a workshop that ASCAP holds every year here in Los Angeles and uh, hundreds and hundreds of applicants from around the world apply to be in this thing every year. They accept 12 people per year and so I did that the summer of 2012 and basically what the workshop is um, is it's an opportunity for these young composers sort of who haven't really careers haven't really taken off yet uh, to come to Los Angeles to come to ASCAP and sort of do this month-long intensive boot camp, this film scoring boot camp, and it, it uh, culminates with a recording session at Fox with a 60-some piece orchestra with all the best players in town. It's all, you know, John Williams' principal players. Um, and you write a cue, a piece of music, to a pre-existing film. And your job is to sort of just, just write a new cue, basically replace the music in the film. Um, and then you get to, you conduct it, and you get this amazing recording worth, I don't know, 10, 15 grand probably, but you get it, it's all free, you don't pay anything for it. And so coming out of that workshop, um, I had this, this demo um, that was, you know, full orchestra, no, no MIDI, and finally could compete with, at least sonically, maybe not from a compositional standpoint, but could at least compete with the, the sort of sounds that you're hearing in blockbusters. Um, and I was also lucky enough to win an award um, called the Michelle and Dean Kay Award out of that workshop that took me to New York to Lincoln Center, got to meet some other people. And yeah, so while I, while I would say that that wasn't necessarily a big break, a lot of people have listened to that demo and hired me on the basis of that. Um, that's how I got involved with Ben, as he heard that piece and that was that. So if I hadn't gotten into the workshop, probably a lot of things wouldn't have happened. Do you remember what your demo was? Like, can you describe it to me? Oh, the the piece that I wrote for the workshop? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, um, so yeah, ironically, I, I mentioned I'd worked for uh, Michael Giacchino on a few films. Um, I did not work on Star Trek, but the scene that I was writing was the reveal of the Enterprise in the 2009 J.J. Abrams Star Trek. Um, and Michael's score is like fairly iconic and has, has an amazing theme that you hear the first time you see the Enterprise. So that was what I had to write to. Um, and I've never, I've never played it for him, but maybe at some point, if I'm feeling brave, I will. Um, yeah, so, so it's, you know, it's great wide shots of space and spaceships, fairly bombastic fare. Now, normally when I talk to people about their projects, they refer to the visuals, which I can't really show you on a podcast. However, today I am so happy to be able to share with you Nick's ASCAP demo for Star Trek.
fairly established in LA. How do you find work? Do you go out to people or do people come to you? Um, you keep, it's kind of a cliche, but you have to definitely keep hustling, you know? Um, particularly when you consider the fact that when you're a film composer, you are sort of beholden to the schedules of other people's projects. Um, so that being said, you need to be constantly out there uh, looking for gigs. And hopefully you, know, you hopefully you get to a point where you've worked with enough people and you've established enough really positive relationships that those people are just going to keep coming back to you. And so that's your, your, your repeat business, for lack of a better term, is your bread and butter. Um, so at this point, I'm still, still really interested in trying to meet as many talented uh, filmmakers as I possibly can. But I guess when I think about it, I don't, yeah, I guess when I think about it, um, all the work I've gotten in the past couple years has just sort of come in at the right time. And, um, and then, you know, when there are times where you have gaps where nobody's working on a project or they're not in post yet, so you're not needed, then you fill your time with other, uh, you know, musical or other pursuits and hope that you have some money saved or royalty money or something like that so you don't starve. Great. So let's say you get a project. What's your first step? What's the first thing you do? Like on a, on a film? Yeah, on a film. Well, is there a difference? Um, well, I mean, I, I write concert music as well, um, just like music for orchestras. They have, it's as far away from what I do as a film composer as you could possibly imagine. Um, well, I'll answer your film question first. Um, if I'm writing for, if I'm writing a score for a feature film or a short film, usually I'll you know just watch, watch it down and get a general emotional feeling for the story or the project if it's nonfiction, um, and maybe maybe a theme will sort of present itself, or maybe um, maybe I'll be stuck. Maybe I'll need to talk to the director and sort of get into his or her headspace. Um, but yeah, I mean, really, at the beginning, you're kind of just, it's such a subjective thing. You're kind of just keeping track of how does it make you feel? How, is it a texture? Is it a melody? Is it a particular instrument? And how does that, um, yeah, how does that inform an overall musical direction? And also, to be practical, does the director have a clear vision of what he wants the music to be? Um, I think it's your job as a composer to come in with a viewpoint and to, if you have, thoughts and opinions about what the music should do, um, by all means voice those opinions and, and fight for them if you really believe in them. But at the end of the day, your job is to help the director uh, tell his or her story. Um, and again, if they have a very clear idea of what they want musically, like, yeah, you, and if you disagree, you can disagree for a while, but if you're both holding your ground, you, you need to at some point come on board with their vision because it's their project. Um, whereas, if I'm writing a concert piece for, if I just get a commission from an orchestra and they say, we want an orchestral piece, like I did this piece, I did a um, concerto for four harps a couple of years ago for the Naples Philharmonic. And the only real conditions were, it needs to be for four harps, and it needs to be, I think they wanted it between 10 and 15 minutes. Um, and, then, and it was like for a celebration. That was basically it. So then I wrote, actually I wrote a piece that was longer than that, but, um, but you know you can basically do whatever you want within reason, um, and all the sort of a lot of the compositional tools, I think are at least with respect to a lot of modern film music, um, which is oftentimes repetitive and, and a lot simpler musically than film music of the past 20, 30, 40, and more years. 
um, the compositional tools for concert music are oftentimes far more advanced than what you might be asked to do as a film composer today. Um, although there are, there are directors, again, that will ask you to write a melody and develop it and use, sort of use your, um, yeah, use your compositional tools to support the film. But more often than not, you get a lot of sort of repetitive, simple, less is more type of directions today. Cool. Going back a little bit, talking about directors who have a clear vision, can you explain more what you mean by that? Do you mean like they want this type of instrument and this type of beat or more kind of general? Yeah, um, it, it definitely varies director to director. Um, well, first of all, they need, they need to know the story well, just from a dramatic standpoint. If they don't understand what's happening, that's one of the first things that I kind of look for when talking to a director is like, do they even understand what they've done? And most of the times they do, but sometimes you ask a question about, okay, so whose point of view are we at here? Like, for example, take a, just a, a sort of a cliched example, like in a horror movie, if a character is you know, walking down the hallway and it's dark and there's a door um, at the end of the hallway and he's slowly, slowly reaching for the door, like probably we're gonna play the suspense of what that character is feeling, what's gonna be behind that door. Um, but there are other uh, examples where if the director doesn't really know what he or she wants, then that's kind of a red flag. Um, but on the flip side, if they A, know, know exactly what's happening in the story, really, really get what's going on dramatically, um, and then beyond that, have basically uh, developed musical tastes, whether it's like some kind of hip-hop thing or like this really old-fashioned classical idea, um, it really doesn't matter to me as long as they are clear about what they want and, and as long as they're open to um, suggestions. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really more about just being confident that they know what they're doing, that they know what the story they're telling is um, and have some kind of idea of the type of music that might best support that story. How musically literate do you think a director needs to be in order to like work with a composer and get what they want out of it? Not at all. Um, you, you literally need to know nothing about music. Again, I come back to you need to know drama. If you know drama really, really well, and if you can articulate what your characters want, the obstacles they're coming up against, and particularly where you want the audience to be emotionally at any beat in the story, that's, that's the most important thing. So again, it, it comes down to just having as comprehensive an understanding of drama and structure as you possibly can. Um, and there are just like, you know, great stories of directors trying to uh, speak in musical terms and, and the composer has to sort of translate um, to, to, to make sense of what they're saying. Um, but again, more often than not, if the director just gets the story and can eloquently articulate what he or she wants the audience to be feeling at any moment, then that's the rest of it is up to the composer to be like, oh, okay, so you want them to feel apprehensive here. So what if we do these chords? And then the director can be like, oh yeah, that works, but what if we, you know, and then the collaboration starts at that point. And there are directors across the whole um, range, like uh, Ben here at Breakwater is one of the most musically literate um, directors I've worked with, not in the sense that he's, you know, went to music school and is, has a comprehensive understanding of uh, music theory, but he has a really good ear and he really knows when he likes something and when he dislikes something. Um, and he's such a music lover that he can sort of call on, oh, you know, this part in this score, why don't we try something like that? And that can be really helpful to sort of have signposts to work from. Great. So 
you get a job, you listen to a story, you talk to the director. What's your process for writing the music? Do you write it down by hand? Do you just kind of improvise it? What do you do? Maybe I could look back and see commonalities in what I've done in the past, and maybe there's a process in there somewhere. Um, but I definitely don't have like an order of doing things. Um, it always seems like it's complete chaos at first, and then gradually you sort of are chipping away at the marble, and maybe there's a David in there somewhere. Um, but yeah, sometimes if I'm sitting in front of the computer, sometimes I'll write into the sequencer. If I'm sitting at the piano, I'll write on staff paper. Um, if I'm out in public and I have an idea, I have a series of incredibly embarrassing um, like voice memos of me humming. Um, and then sometimes if, if I'm at home and I, I, I only have uh, like manuscript paper, I'll just jot out a little idea. Um, but ultimately, yeah, so usually there's a sort of combination of actually all of those things at the beginning, and then I'll gather little scraps of paper, my voice memos, and whatever I have in the sequencer, and then sort of force yourself to eliminate the bad ideas, and then pick a good idea, and then hopefully the score is born from that good idea, so there's a cohesiveness throughout. Cool. How do you start putting the score together? I'm one of those directors who I have no idea anything about music. Sure. So. You can go about it any number of ways. Uh, you can start with really easy scenes that you know what to do. I think that's what I tend to do. I tend to, the scenes that I know, okay, I know what this should be. I get all the beats and I already have some ideas. I'll just write those because they're, um, I don't know, they're fresh in my head or something. Uh, yeah, I guess, now that I think about it, I think I leave the most stubborn ones to last. And I'm not, I'm not like really a procrastinator. I usually, I usually finish by deadline. It's usually never a crazy race to the finish line. Um, I usually get sleep the night before sessions, which is funny because uh, most composers that I know don't. They, <laughs> not knocking them, it's just, um, I've never really experienced that sort of rush to the finish line. Um, yeah, so I think I usually start with the easiest scenes that I have an idea for. Um, and then, you know, after a few days, get into a rhythm and hopefully just continue to, to check them off the list, um, which can be really, really overwhelming at first. But when you get to put a little green check next to a cue, it's the most satisfying feeling in the world. Some cues, they'll be approved instantly. And it's, it's never the ones you think. Um, and then certain cues that you think you knocked out of the park, you'll rewrite like five, six times, maybe more. Um, and sometimes it's start from square one, do something completely new. And other times it's, oh, we just want to highlight more X emotion here, you know, something like that. Um, but you're usually not rewriting after an orchestra date, unless some higher up really thinks it's not working and wants to fork over the money for another session. Yeah. Earlier you were talking about like stubborn scenes that you like kind of had some difficulty with. Do you have like an example of a scene like that? Mm, good question. Um, um, I, ca I can't think of a specific one off the top of my head, but more often than not, those scenes um, are scenes where there are multiple conflicting emotions or varying points of view. Um, in other words, it's not just like a sad scene or a triumphant scene, that kind of stuff. The same way from an actor's standpoint, like that stuff is usually the easiest. Do the big, broad things, like if it's a triumphant fanfare, you know, um, that's simple. But if it's a character 
really happy that his son was just born, but also sad that his mother and father just passed away. You know, like those types of things that um, have more than one emotion going on are often the most difficult to capture because it's not as simple as, okay, write something sad, then write something happy, and then put them together. What do you try to do in those situations? I, again, I, I wish I had a more intellectual response. It's, it's so subjective. Um, you, you, you try things until it's right, until it feels right. Um, there, there's, there's so little science and method. Uh, you know, you know, it's not that there's not method, but in terms of the music fitting the picture, it's so completely subjective. You give it to 10 different composers and 10 different directors, and you'll have a million different possibilities of how the scene can be played. Um, and actually, to go back to that ASCAP workshop for a second, that was one of the most fascinating things about that workshop is that we had 12 kids and four movies. So you got to see each movie with three different scores and see how each composer approached uh, each particular scene. Um, and if anything is an illustration of the subjectivity inherent in the craft, it's seeing that play out in front of you. Yeah. Oh, that sounds awesome. So you finish the score. Uh, you turn it into, well, do you mix your own music? Um, whether I mix it myself or not sort of depends. Well, it de depends on timeline and depends on budget. Um, I've been fortunate enough for the, a few projects now to work with uh, this great mixer, Brad Hanel, um, who has mixed my full orchestra stuff, live orchestra stuff. And that's nice because I orchestrate my own music, so I know, uh, I know what it's going to sound like, but Brad makes sure that that is preserved on the recording. Because um, with, with a bad engineer, you can orchestrate really, really well, and if it's not recorded properly, it can sound horrible. Um, so I'm, I'm in a lucky spot now of knowing that as long as I do my job and, and write something decent that's playable and orchestrate it in a way that's idiomatic for the players, that it'll sound fantastic. Um, and then, yeah, there are other smaller projects, you know, maybe commercials and stuff like that where the turnaround's really tight or the budget's just not big enough for me to justify bringing on a mixer that I'll mix my own stuff. But yeah, once you, know, once you record the score and once the score is mixed, you sort of you sign off on the final mixes and make sure that everything, all the levels are right. And again, with Brad, my mix notes are so incredibly minimal because he just nails it on the first try. Um, and yeah, then it's off to the dub stage, and you hope it doesn't get buried in the mix. Great. Uh, let's go back to the recording day. Tell me more about that. Do you like record in your office? Do you get to record with orchestras? Is it varied? Yeah, it definitely varies. Um, obviously, with small budgets, you're not recording with an orchestra. You're doing it all MIDI, or um, or you might have a MIDI mock-up, but then uh, utilize a process called sweetening, which is basically where you bring in maybe one, two, three uh, of an instrument and layer them, overdub them over and over and over until it starts to kind of mesh with the MIDI instruments and give the ear the illusion of being a live performance. Um, obviously, I prefer to record live uh, because orchestrating my music and also conducting, I can generally get in the ballpark of the performance that I want just by what I do with the stick, what I do with the baton. And after we sight read a cue, I can maybe make just a few comments about adjusting dynamics or adjusting an articulation to 
a section of musicians and the music will be at a point where the MIDI mock-up could never approach just with the human uh, human aspect of it. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely varies, but the most fun thing to do is to do it with live orchestra. What would you suggest to recent music graduates? If they don't have access to a live orchestra, what should they do if they want to like make music, basically, yeah. and make it sound good? Um, well, you should you should try to record soloists live. Then, I mean, when, when I came out here, I was recording a lot of people like in my bedroom. You know, I'd have cellists or violinists or whoever come over, um, and you know, you you kind of if you start when you're straight out of music school, if you start hiring other music students for you know whatever you can afford to come over and do this for you. You're also building relationships with players, and you're going to need those relationships as your career grows, and you need to continue to hire people. Um, but yeah, I mean, in addition to making sure that your your MIDI mock-up chops are up to par, um, it definitely behooves you to record record live as much as you possibly can. And even when you think you can't afford it, don't spend money on the next you know computer upgrade or whatever. Spend it on human beings, and it, your stuff is always going to sound better. Great. What other advice, like career or life advice, would you give to people who are just graduating school for the music? Um, yeah, I think the most important thing is, this is going to sound so self-help, but just be a good person. Like, that is literally the most important thing. Like, far beyond being good at music, just be nice, be kind. I, I always think, like, you know, how, yeah, how, how you treat, you know, that person in the room that probably can never help you advance your career, like, that's who you are. You know, how you treat somebody who's going to advance your career, who cares? Because, you know, we all want to be nice to somebody who might do a favor for us. But yeah, how, how you behave with people that are just maybe in the, in the session to watch or something like that, um, that kind of thing gets noticed. Um, and most importantly, when you're starting out, you're going to Everybody's telling you you got to network, you got to blah blah blah, and schmooze and all this stuff. And it doesn't have to be that gross because most musicians kind of eschew the idea of having to go and like go to mixers and hand out business cards and all that kind of thing. But I think, at least for me, I've found that if you find when you're talking to people, if you can find things that you're genuinely interested in about them, the whole like networking angle goes away. Um, and again, I know this sounds self-helpy, but if you just forget about the idea of like what can this person do for me and just focus on figuring out like how you can help that person, A, you're just going to feel better about yourself as a human because it's just a better way to, to behave with other people. Um, and B, it will be self-serving in a bizarre way because people will always remember you as the guy who, you know, was always nice and was always on time and, and just was helpful and didn't expect anything in return. That, that kind of reputation goes a really long way. And having gotten to the point where in the past couple of years I've been hiring a lot of people, of course, yeah, they, you know, they have to be musically solid. Obviously, all that stuff is kind of a given. But beyond that, like the first thing I care about is just what are they like as people? Are they nice people? Um, if they weren't really good at music, would they still be a good person? I know that that's not like a, it's not like a, um, I don't know if that's the advice that most people hear, but I, th I think it's the most important out here. Because out here, when everybody's really competitive, you stand out. If you're, if you're just a nice guy, you stand out so much.
Yeah, that was great advice. Okay. I think you were the first one who actually said just be a nice person. It's so important. I know I know it sounds so <laughs> cheesy, but it is because you just um, you meet so many people that are out here that are sort of haggard and just sick of the business and cynical and all that kind of thing. And nine times out of ten, those people are the same people that are dicks to the young kids who are just starting out. Um, you know, everybody starts everybody starts out at some point and every single person needs help. You know, nobody does it on their own. I cannot even list the number of people who took a chance on me when I came out here and said, oh, you know, he seems eager, seems nice enough, like, let's give him a shot. Um, just being a kind person is easily the most important thing. Even if you're, you know, if you're shy and if you don't like to talk to people a lot or something like that, if being a composer is a good thing for you because you get to be away from people and if you're introverted like that, that's fine, that's great. But still, when you're with other people, just go find the person who's clearly shy and uncomfortable and ask them how they're doing. So yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think you just have to remember that everybody, everybody starts somewhere, you know. Thank you so much, Nick, for sharing your experience with us and your great advice. If you want to check out his music for yourself, go to his website at www.njlmusic.com or go to the official Poor Autors Facebook page. Don't forget to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes to keep up to date. Poor Autors was created by me, Laura Brinkat. Our music composer is Nick Angeloni, our sound mixing supervisor is Michaela Kane, and our graphics designer is Jamie Kaplan. Thank you so much, guys, for all your hard work. It was an honor and a pleasure to work with all of you. There are two kinds of people who listen to this podcast. The first kind listens and says, These people are crazy. They work ridiculously hard with no encouragement or support. They drive themselves bankrupt. They ruin relationships. And for what? So five people can watch it? To screen at a festival that you paid 80 bucks for? For the minuscule chance that someone might want to hire them to make a feature? This is just so depressing. Why would anyone want to do that? And then there's the other kind. The kind who listens to this podcast and says, these people are crazy. Just like me. They strive long and hard to create meaningful art. They put their money towards creating something, to building new relationships. And who knows, maybe only a few people will see it, but those people will be moved and changed. Maybe it will screen at a festival and make someone smile. Maybe someone will discover me and take a chance on me. This is just so exciting. Why would anyone want to do anything else? So next week on Poor Tours, instead of sitting around listening to other people talk about doing things, you're going to get up and do something. You're going to direct that scene, write that play, shoot that commercial. You are going to be creative, you are going to take risks, and you are going to be the next Poor Tours. And as for me, well, I'm going to go get some well-deserved sleep. That is until the next project takes over my life. I'm Laura Brinkat. Thank you for listening to Poor Odd Tours. <laughs>